Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelip. This week, the 2022 midterms are heating up and some local candidates are already rolling in the cash. More states make a direct assault on abortion rights, hoping a conservative Supreme Court will strike down Roe v. Wade. A local lawmaker says it's an honor to be on Russia's naughty list. And finally, some evidence of voter fraud. But the accused is a close ally of former President Trump. But first, Mayor Bruce Harrell, City of Seattle, was asked a very simple question at a press conference this week. Take a listen. Is Seattle safe? So, you know, that's a tough question. That is sort of the definition of a pregnant pause and certainly not the response that you want to hear if you're a campaign manager running the politics for the mayor's office. Joining me now is Matt Markovich. He is the political reporter for Fox 13 News here in Seattle. And that was a rather shocking, albeit honest, response from Mayor Bruce Harrell. Yeah, I found it surprisingly ambiguous. And I was right there when he answered that. I has It was kind of a, an impromptu press conference at an event that was totally unrelated to public safety and homelessness and what we asked the mayor about. But he, as you know, because of COVID, Jeff, the lawmakers don't appear in public for press cameras and microphones too often. So when he made an appearance at an event, it it was basically fair game. We can ask him a lot of questions that have been on our minds for quite a bit, especially me. And we took advantage of this. So we peppered him with a a lot of different questions. And and he was asked that really simple question, uh, is Seattle safe? And he went on to say after that long pause, he said that Seattle is on a trajectory to be one of the safest cities in the country. And he'll make sure of that because that's why he got elected. I guess it's, it's indicative of both of a politician trying to be honest and not have a pat answer, which we've all heard before. But at the same time, you want to have the mayor to have an answer to something like that and not just say that's a tough question and then say that we're on a trajectory to be one of the safest cities in Seattle uh, in the country. Well, certainly one of the things he has done since taking office the 1st of January was crack down on a lot of these illegal homeless encampments on public rights away, particularly the ones that are either dangerous or or blocking sidewalks or streets. So he could certainly point to that. I'm surprised he didn't. Yeah, he, 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 but he, but he's also careful. And I even asked him the question about homelessness and the intersection with crime. And he and his deputy mayor, Tiffany Washington, who's in charge of his homeless strategy, have been very careful to say that we should not conflate the two. But yet in this same uh, impromptu press conference, he appeared to start agreeing that you, those two strategies have an intersection. He admitted there's an intersection between the two and that you may have to address crime in the homelessness strategy. But then I asked him, well, when are we going to hear about your homelessness strategy? He's been in office more, for more than 100 days now. From the very beginning he took office, he said that he's going to lay out a homeless strategy. And here we are you know, in the month of April, and he took office beginning of January, we've yet to hear it. So I asked him, when are we going to start hearing this? And he said, we'll have it in a couple of weeks. Well, I hate to say that's an answer we've heard already. And so we're still waiting to hear what his homelessness strategy is. And you did talk about how, you know, you can see it right away that he is making moves on public uh, right-of-ways, where there is a, quote, safety hazard, unquote, for a camp on a sidewalk 
or in a public park. So he's made those a priority. He said he was going to do that even at the, before he was elected mayor, and he's making good on that. But, you know, there are just uh, encampments that come and go all the time and uh, encampments that are people would think that are public safety hazards, but all they basically do when the city shows up, they just clean the garbage from the camp and leave the camp staying there. So we were waiting to hear this homelessness strategy. And now that he said uh, on this day that there is an intersection with public safety, I think that was a big admission. Well, even aside from the homelessness issue, which, as we've talked about, is connected to public safety, there's a number of other things that contribute to it, and and not all of them are under the purview of the mayor of the city of Seattle. You also have you know, the prosecuting attorney who handles felony crimes in King County. You have the city attorney, which handles misdemeanor crimes in King County. You have the judges who we've uh, reported on uh, where they've turned people back out, sent them back out onto the streets with lenient sentences, even though they're repeat offenders. So this is a very complex problem when you're Mm -hmm. asking whether or not Seattle is safe. It is, but it's on the minds of the people. I mean, this I think he's very much aware of the Seattle Chamber of Commerce poll that was released this week of 700 uh, likely Seattle voters that basically said 73% feel less safe than he did two years ago. And that when it came to the number one issue in the city of Seattle, homelessness has been and still is the number one issue, but it's dropped a few percentage points from the last time this poll was taken last August. It dropped five percentage points. But the one figure that did increase was the second most biggest issue this poll showed was that public safety and crime is still very prominent, and it's increased 17 percentage points from the same time this question was asked in last August. So for him to talk about homelessness and what's what's he going to do about that and having a public safety strategy, two separate strategies, mind you, that he wants to roll out and finally admit that the two need to intersect. I think that's a, a big issue. And that's something that he can control. He, Like you said, he cannot control what the judges do. He cannot control what the city attorney and who she's going to prosecute, as well as the King County prosecutor and their, their choices of what kind of crimes are going to prosecute. And then you have Obviously, the restrictions of the jail and people not being allowed in the jail, we've, which we've talked almost at nauseum. But he does have control about what the city of Seattle can do on the streets of Seattle and about the homeless population within the city limits, where they're going to go, and the crime that may result from these encampments. Well, the other thing to, to point out, to be fair as well, is there's an undisputed connection between a lot of these homeless encampments and crime in the various areas of the city. But as we've talked about, crime is a much bigger, more complex problem. And so do you think the public in this poll is conflating the two? Because as you head downtown, you may see the encampments, you may see people on the street, but they're not necessarily committing crimes. But to be quite honest, the issue of poverty, the issue of homelessness isn't pretty. Well, I think I think the poll shows that people are not conflating the two, because when the poll was asked, well, do you basically support sweeps and get people right off the street? Nine percent said that's what they what kind of strategy they would support. But more than 80 percent said that they need the city or some agency needs to find a home for the people who are unsheltered. So I think the public in this poll got the point that unsheltered need homes. The question was not asked, do you think 
homeless encampments and the people living that are homeless are a major contributor to the crime in Seattle. That question was not asked. Unfortunately, that's something I would have asked in the poll, but it was not asked. But again, it's, it comes down to public perception and the public perception right now in Seattle is there's a question whether it's safe. And there's some question whether or not the mayor and, and the city council has a solution to the homelessness and public safety issues, which are clearly the most important issues on the public's mind. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News political reporter. Thank you so much for your time and insight as always. You're welcome, Jeff. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, 2022 is an election year and there's already been a flurry of fundraising and a significant list of incumbents calling it quits when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, we're already starting to see candidates line up even though we haven't had filing week, that comes up a little bit later on in May for the various seats in not only the United States House of Representatives, but the state legislature as well. And we've also seen a number of Democrats call it quits over the last couple of months. That's giving an opportunity for Republicans in what could be a wave year. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is the editor and writer for the Washington Observer, for longtime AP political reporter down in Olympia. Let's start with that idea of a wave year for Republicans. It's pretty much expected that the Republicans are going to take control of the U.S. House of Representatives, but what about here in Washington state and the state legislature. The Democrats have fairly sizable majorities in both the state house and the state Senate. Even if we get a pretty substantial wave year for Republicans, and I agree that I think on a national level, we're certainly going to see that it's kind of hard to get to actual takeover. If you look at the seats that are in play and things would have to really go the, the Republicans way. But definitely there are some very competitive races. And right now, we really don't have a lot of polling and not like we're going to have a whole lot of polling for legislative districts anyway. So the measure and the and the guidance that we use at this point in the race is fundraising. And you wrote a piece in the Washington Observer that takes a look at some of that. And there are some surprises there. The smart money tends to gravitate to the hot races. For example, the 26th district, which is over on the Kitsap Peninsula, stretching from Gig Harbor up to Bremerton. Senator Emily Randall's in her first term. She's one of the legislature's most progressive members. She's got a challenge from Representative Jesse Young, um, who's one of the most conservative members of the House. And there's a lot of money flying around in that race already. Randall raised $66,000 last month, and she has $171,000 in hand. Young raised 12000 last month, but he's got $180,000 in hand. You know, that's just really the beginning. You can expect to see a ton of party money flow into that race. What about some of the resignations or shall we say retirements that we're seeing? I think most notably would be Tim Sheldon, the Democrat who caucuses with the Republicans. He was the longest serving state legislator and he called it quits. I think Senator Sheldon had been around for a very long time, and it's been a long time since he caucused with the Democrats. His district is one of those places that's increasingly conservative and Republican. It's pretty likely that his seat falls to one of the to a Republican House member uh, in that district. So, you know, there's a Democrat in the race, but I don't know that there's they're expected to do very well. And of course, here in Washington state, we have the top two primary, which kind of changes the calculus, because there are some districts where you're going to see two Republicans or two Democrats move on to the general. You know, that's very definitely true. I mean, you see that in Seattle, for example, 
when Senator Reuben Carlisle announced that he wasn't seeking re-election, one of the House members in his district, Noel Frame, who's chair of the Finance Committee and is the person who's always sort of pushing the tax the rich kinds of ideas, announced for his seat, she'll probably have a relatively easy time, but there's a crowd for her seat and they're all Democrats, and that'll be Democrat on Democrat in the fall. Speaking of contentious races, we're looking at one up in Whatcom County. This is the one that was vacated when State Senator Doug Erickson passed away, and then you had the young 22-year-old Simon Sevslik that was uh, appointed to replace him. This is absolutely my favorite political story of the year. So Democrats control the Whatcom County Council, And so the party gave them a short list of three people that included Simon Sefcik and also Ben Ellenboss, who's a more established Republican up there who's on the council itself. And they passed over Ellenboss for Sefcik. And that's generally considered to be them doing a solid for Representative Sharon Shoemake, who was already in the race on the Democratic side. You know, she's facing an incumbent who's basically fresh out of college with a pretty short, although somewhat impressive resume. You know, that in theory makes it easier for her to swing a Senate seat that had been Republican for kind of a long time. One of the more entertaining elements of that is that two years ago, uh, Shoemake beat Simon Sefcik's mother, Jennifer Sefcik, in one of the most expensive house races that's, that we've seen in a while. So do we expect that seat to flip at all? It's hard to know. Shoemake won in 2018, um, but her seatmate was a Republican. And then in 2020, Alicia Rule, who's a Democrat, won the other house seat. It's a very narrowly balanced district, sort of originally drawn to be kind of Republican leaning swing district. You know, it's hard to know. Uh, it's sort of kind of generally assumed that Donald Trump at the top of the ticket was a drag on Republicans in that area. GOP candidate might do better this year. Another notable retirement on the Democratic side is Senator Mona Doss in the 47th district in the Kent, Auburn, Covington area. She's stepping aside. How does that change things? So that, you know, that makes that district from kind of a D-leaning to a toss-up in my mind. You've got um, Bill Boyce, who is the president of the Kent City Council on the Republican side. He's got a really impressive political-type resume. He was a U.S. Army Ranger. He was a Boeing engineer. He was on the school board for a really long time. So he's a pretty solid candidate. That district is all Democrat now, but Doss won it four years ago by beating Joe Fain, the Republican who was facing an allegation of sexual misconduct that surfaced just a few weeks before the election. In the most recent redistricting process, where Fain himself was the Senate Republican's appointee to the redistricting commission, the district was redrawn to be slightly more advantageous for Republicans, but it's not a huge change. So again, that's one of those With an open seat in a wave year, Republicans probably like their chances pretty well. So overall, as we look at the makeup of who's retiring, who's resigning, who's running in in the various districts, is there a legitimate chance that Republicans might grab one of the chambers? It's 5741 in the House. I think that's right. So they need nine. It's possible to count to nine, but it's, you know, they have to win some places where they're all Democrats now. So, for example, the 44th district up in Snohomish County, all three of its representatives in the legislature are Democrats, but the two House members, 
relatively new. One of them was just appointed. The other's in her first term. So, you know, that that kind of area. So, uh, I mean, is there a chance that they could retake the House? Yes. I think the chances of actually retaking the Senate are lower. Either way, you don't sound very convinced for either chamber. Uh, You know, I mean, it's a relatively sizable majority and there's a been a kind of general demographic shift in some areas that largely favors the Democrats. The Republicans have been able to make inroads into into some Democratic areas in rural Washington in recent years, but most of those seats have already changed hands, and it's hard to find a lot of opportunity. Um, I, I do think that the Republicans are likely to get some seats back, but I'm not sure that they're going to get enough to take the majority. And before we let you go, there's one statewide race on the ballot, and that is for Secretary of State. We saw Kim Wyman resign in order to take a job with the Biden administration. Steve Hobbs was appointed to replace him. And now we have the election to fill out the remainder of Wyman's term. What are we expecting there? So that's a really um, interesting race for me. Um Hobbs has not done that well statewide. Uh, He ran for lieutenant governor um, a while back, you know, didn't make it out of the primary. Um, He's very much a moderate kind of suburban, ex-urban Democrat who doesn't play particularly well with the party base in Seattle. So that's, you know, an interesting dynamic. I was curious to see whether he would get a Democratic primary challenger. Thus far, he hasn't. But he has gotten a really interesting challenge from Julie Anderson, who is the Pierce County auditor. She's running an independent campaign and the Republican in the race has not raised a lot of money. And so there's a real possibility that Anderson gets through the primary just based on the fact that she's been on on the ballot in Pierce County for a lot of years. And some people will just really be attracted to the idea of an independent candidate. And that, you know, that that becomes a very interesting race because she can run on, you know, administrative competence at conducting elections, which is what the secretary of state's main job is from most people's perspective. And the job has been held by a Republican for many, many years. But all those Republicans had or at least the last two Republicans had that exact experience. Um, both Kim Wyman and Sam Reed, who was her predecessor, were Thurston County Auditor before they were elected Secretary of State and were essentially elected and then reelected several times on that argument. Basically, the job of the Secretary of State is to administer the state's elections, and I know how to do that. It's also one of those offices that really has, by design and then by tradition, been very nonpartisan. That's generally true. Uh, there's a You know, the Republicans who've held it have been moderates for the most part, and there has not been a lot of the politicization of that office that you see in other states. All right, Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much. You can read more at WashingtonObserver.substack.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. We have to take another break, but when we come back, it's not just Texas. More and more states are passing laws that are a direct attack on Roe v. Wade when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, it's not just Texas anymore. Several other conservative or Republican-leaning states are passing laws that are copycat laws to Texas, or at least very similar to the anti-abortion laws that were passed just in the past few months. Most notably, Florida, Kentucky, and Idaho. 
Joining us now is Amber Phillips. She's a reporter for the Washington Post. And these, much like in Texas, seem to be very direct attacks on Roe versus Wade. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, the Republicans in these states, uh, Oklahoma's another big one that just signed one into law this week, don't deny that. They're, they're saying straight out, I think the Oklahoma governor, Kevin Sitt, they passed a law, he signed into law, a bill that criminalizes abortion providers. You can go to jail for 10 years or face a $100,000 fine for providing an abortion, even though Supreme Court has said they're constitutional in Texas up to a point. Um, so when he signed it into law this week, he said, hey, I'm summarizing here, but we want to outlaw abortion in Oklahoma. We want to make this an anti-abortion state. And so these new bills and laws are, are pretty unabashed in how far they're trying to push the envelope uh, to stop abortion and stop it completely. And, you know, this isn't new, right? Anti-abortion efforts are as old as the nation. But what's new this time is that the Supreme Court could allow these to stay into effect. Uh, they already three times have passed on knocking down the Texas law. And the Texas law in particular is rather unique, allowing anybody to sue, basically giving a cause of action to anyone in the state. Are we seeing similar action in in these laws that we're seeing in these other states, or is it varied in their approach? It's varied in their approach. There are tons and tons and tons of states considering copycat bills to Texas, but only one so far, and still quite a bit, (laughs) has passed this into law in Idaho. And so they did a, a... a legislation very similar to Texas, although where Texas says that like anybody who aids a woman getting an abortion from the Uber driver to the person who counseled her to the person who, you know, maybe opened the door at the clinic for her can get sued. Uh, the Idaho law says just the abortion provider can get sued. So you know, even some really conservative states didn't want to go as far as Texas, which underscores how extreme it is. The other trend we're seeing are states like Florida and Kentucky passing 15-week bans. And they're emboldened by that number because in December, the Supreme Court took on a case about a 15-week ban in Mississippi and uh, that had been passed in a law a year or two ago. And the conservative justices seem pretty open to keeping that ban, which if they did, it would knock down Roe v. Wade protections, which allow an abortion up until about 20, 24 weeks in a pregnancy. Uh, In addition, what's really extreme, uh, at least based on history of the law and polling about how Americans feel about these 15-week bans is that many of these states don't allow exceptions for rape or incest, just if the woman's life is in danger. And polls show that a majority, a big majority of Americans uh, would like those protections in abortion, even if they do want some abortion restrictions. Which of these new laws in in, in the varying states are we expecting the Supreme Court to take up, or is that really just a crapshoot at this point? We don't know. What we're all waiting for is the first step, which is the Supreme Court to rule likely in June, maybe before then, on whether this Mississippi law, this 15-week ban can stand. If they do that, there's almost no reason why these other 15-week bans couldn't stand as well. And and there's actually a number of states that have what's called trigger laws, at least a dozen states, maybe as much as half the nation have them on the books. And that says if the Supreme Court uh, knocked down Roe v. Wade or loosened it, that their laws would automatically go into place restricting abortion to that number. What I don't know is how the Supreme Court would ever rule, if ever, on the Texas six-week ban or the Idaho six-week ban. Um, and the, the conservative justices have pointed out that they noted that that has serious constitutional concerns, but it's weaving its way through the courts um, in a really complicated 
complicated way. Texas lawmakers designed it that way. And it may never get to the Supreme Court for them to hear the constitutionality question of this. And who knows by then if the court decides to take up uh, another, you know, more strict ban as a way for, for these conservative justices to restrict abortion even more in America. One more option is that the court could just outright end abortion protections by just saying we don't think Roe v. Wade is constitutional anymore. And then that would just open up the landscape to whatever kind of laws Republicans want to pass. How many of these laws have been able to stand while they go through the court system? Because it, aside from original jurisdiction, in which case the Supreme Court can take up any case it wants at any point in the process, most of the time it goes through the district court, the appellate court, and so on up the chain. How many of these have remained in effect or have been put on hold until it's heard by the court system? Well, a number of these just got signed into law this week, actually. A state, for the most part, state legislatures operate at the beginning of the year, and then by springtime, governors are signing bills into law before state legislatures go out of session. And so they just got sent in a law this week. And so in the case of like Oklahoma, I don't think that criminal abortion law goes into effect until later this summer. It remains to be seen how, if at all, uh, abortion rights activists can challenge that in court. Do they have to wait until it goes into effect? And then how long, like you just said, how long will weaving it up through the courts go um, and take? And so it's it seems likely for now that these abortion, near total abortion bans will probably go into effect in a number of states. How has the public been responding to this? I mean, you mentioned some of the polling that most of the polls uh, suggest that Americans, by and large, support abortion rights. But these individual states, have we seen polls within those states seeing how much support they have for the statewide bans? Some of these states, the, the legislation moves so quickly that, no, we haven't seen that kind of um, polling, but we did in Texas, there's been time to pull that. And what we saw that even in Texas, um, a majority don't want abortion completely outlawed with no protections whatsoever. And and the Texas law gets very, very close. Uh, in addition, what's really controversial in Texas specifically is this, is this notion that anyone can sue and then win $10,000 for, for stopping an abortion successfully or for just suing successfully someone who aided a woman in trying to get an abortion. So that's been unpopular. But when I look at polling nationally, what I see is that a very small percentage, just like 13 or so percent of Americans want abortion illegal, illegal, excuse me, in most cases, a majority of those are Republicans, 60 some percent of Republicans say they want abortion illegal in most cases. And in Oklahoma, in Kentucky, uh, in Idaho, Republicans make up the majority of voters there. What about the public? Have we seen any response from the people seeking abortions? I know we've heard anecdotal stories of women going to border states in Texas, of which one is Oklahoma, which has just passed its own ban. Yeah, that's right. I, in, and in fact, Oklahoma lawmakers said women coming over the border from Texas you know, was a big in, impetus for them to try to pass their own law. Um, and so what what reporters hear and what I hear when I talk to sources who are close to abortion clinics here is that wait times are longer. Uh, abortion clinics, I heard from a source, are just in these regions are completely full to the point where there's no waiting rooms. And so they will try to make treatment rooms wherever they possibly can. And they're short staffed and they've already been slashed with with funding and all these other kind of restrictions that states in these red states have put on them over the past couple of years. And so it is in a 
wide section of America, perhaps growing section of America, it's becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for someone with little to no means to get an abortion. All right, Amber Phillips with the Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We have to take another break, but still to come, evidence of voter fraud finally emerges, but those allegedly committing it are close allies of Donald Trump. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, if you talk with anyone from Trump world, they will say the 2020 election was stolen through voter fraud, but they haven't produced any evidence. Until now, at least one person committed voter fraud, and it happened to be the former White House chief of staff under President Trump, Mark Meadows. So what exactly is going on here? Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And the first real high profile case of alleged voter fraud we see is from Trump world and not vice versa. Yeah, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, is under investigation in North Carolina. And his name has been removed from the North Carolina voter rolls because North Carolina doesn't think he lives there. And they certainly don't think he lived there when he used that as his home address to vote absentee in the last election, which, by the way, um, is one of the things that Mark Meadows and former President Trump complained that millions of people, specifically Democrats, did in order to uh, steal the election from Donald Trump and give it to Joe Biden. Now, it turns out that uh, perhaps Mark Meadows did the same thing. Uh, That's what the investigators in North Carolina think. Apparently, uh, he uh, or and his wife, although specifically I think his wife, they had a trailer home somewhere in the woods that Mark Meadows, according to the person who rented to, it, to them, never, ever lived in this place. And his wife spent two nights sleeping there. So it, it appears designed only to establish an address in North Carolina. Uh, Mark Meadows, of course, lived in Virginia. He uh, wanted to vote absentee. And as you remember, former President Trump vilified absentee ballots saying you should vote in the place that you live, which Mark Meadows did not do, nor did, by the way, former President Trump. He also did absentee ballots. Mark Meadows has not much to say about this, but this is a crime if indeed they uh, are convinced in North Carolina that he committed it. uh, They're still investigating it, but they seem to have enough evidence to pull him off the voter rolls in North Carolina. So if he voted in North Carolina but wasn't supposed to, then where was he supposed to cast his ballot? In Virginia when he was uh, working at the White House? Because I know a lot of people that work in government, particularly that work for the administration, whatever administration it is, tend to vote absentee from their home state. Well, you're supposed to vote where you pay taxes and where you have your primary residence. You remember President Obama would go back fly back to Chicago and vote in his local precinct in Chicago in person. Uh, There was none of this absentee ballot stuff for him. He made a big deal about it when he was running for election. And he still has a home there, although I'm not quite sure he has kept that home. He's now living in Washington, D.C. in a very nice house, not too far from the White House. But at the time, his primary residence was in Chicago, so he voted in Chicago elections, and that's where he voted. The same thing with President Trump. His primary residence used to be in New York, but then he transferred it to Mar-a-Lago, and uh, he would vote absentee there. In fact, at one point, this is this is the richness of the complaints of the Trump administration, specifically President Trump, who said, you know, how hard is it to go and vote in person? Well, there was one year that we uncovered that uh, he actually asked for an absentee ballot 
and sent it from his Mar-a-Lago home, which is less than a mile away from the voting booth. So how did all of this come to light, the news of Mark Meadows, President Trump's former chief of staff, allegedly voting illegally? I think it was in a New York New York Magazine article uh, that was exposed, and the person who had rented this mobile home to them basically spilled the beans going, wait, wait, what do you mean this guy votes in North Carolina? He doesn't live here. He's never even been here, at least to the place he says that he was registered to vote. And the election board investigators then picked up on it. And now we are where we are. Basically, he lived in Virginia and last voted in the 2021 election there. So why would he be using North Carolina as a residence? You say we haven't heard anything from Mark Meadows himself, but what about others in Trump world? Have they responded to this? No, I don't expect they will. Uh, When presented with facts that are contrary to what their narrative is, they often tend to ignore it, especially former President Trump. And, you know, at his rallies, he just spews things that are are completely false. So I I wouldn't expect, and certainly no one's getting up close to talk to Donald Trump unless they're in the media that he likes to talk to, which is uh, conservative media. And what about this push from former President Trump and others to change some of the voting laws in these various conservative or Republican-controlled states? Not only are they pushing it, they've been very successful. There are a number of Republican-majority states where the legislature uh, has the majority and the governor will rubber stamp with a signature. Uh, They've passed a lot of laws that have restricted a lot of the things that we saw and and we had hoped to take for granted after uh, COVID and during the last election where there was no excuse absentee ballot, which a lot of people liked and voted early, which uh, sent a a record number of people voting because it often is very inconvenient for people to actually go to the polls and sit and wait in lines. Uh, In Georgia, I think it was, uh, where they, they passed a law that said, you can't even give someone standing in line uh, a bottle of water because that would be considered electioneering. I guess if you put the slogan of whoever you want to to run for office uh, there. And of course, they're famous for very long lines of people, specifically minorities who have a harder time getting off work to go vote, uh, will stand for hours to cast their vote. So uh, in many states across the country, and these are all primarily Republican majority states, they have made it uh, harder. And in some cases, there are court cases now uh, challenging some of these election laws saying they're unconstitutional. And a lot of these laws were pushed by Mr. Mark Meadows himself. Uh, and continue to be <laughs> and, and, uh, with many others in the Trump administration who to this day now, more than a year uh, after Joe Biden took office, continue to say he's illegitimate, that the election, the election was stolen despite almost no evidence to that effect. Uh, one lawyer, Eastman, I think it's John Eastman, uh, who has been subpoenaed, his records were subpoenaed and he lost a court case, famously a court case where the federal judge said, uh, from the evidence I've seen, it appears more likely than not that former President Trump was involved in crimes in trying to overturn the election. But he is still, uh, according to our reporting, uh, going to state legislatures around the country, still trying to overturn the last election. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks. We have to take one more commercial break, but when we come back, getting on Putin's naughty list. It's an honor for one local congressman when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. 
In eastern Washington, a judge has been named to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the White House announced the nomination of Salvador Mendoza, who had been on the federal district court for eastern Washington since 2014. The 50-year-old has had a long legal career, including serving as a deputy prosecutor, assistant attorney general, and superior court judge. When Mendoza was first confirmed to the federal bench, he received a 92-4 vote in the Senate. Meanwhile, a lawsuit hoping to block the establishment of a homeless shelter will be dismissed, predicts the mayor of Kirkland. The group Keep Kids Safe sued to block a planned shelter at the site of an old La Quinta Inn. They say the city violated open meetings laws and ignored rules about placing shelters near schools and daycares. But in an open letter, Mayor Penny Sweet says the suit is without merit and establishment of the shelter will continue. A judge will likely have the final say. And finally this week, Congressman Rick Larson says it is an honor to be sanctioned by the Russian government. He and nearly 400 other members of the U.S. House of Representatives, including everyone from Washington, are subject to the sanctions imposed by Moscow. It's unclear why some members were sanctioned and others weren't, but the Washington Democrat says it is largely due to the American government's support for Ukraine. We're doing everything else that we can, including crippling financial sanctions, the military aid, and, and of course supporting the humanitarian on the humanitarian side with the refugees in Europe and those coming to the U.S. That from an interview Congressman Larson gave to Northwest News Radio a few weeks ago. The move by Moscow to sanction U.S. officials could also be seen as retaliation for sanctions imposed on members of Russia's government. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, as always, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.